Disrupting Japan, Episode 65. Welcome to Disrupting Japan, straight talk from Japan's most successful entrepreneurs. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening. Today, Naoki Yamada, founder of Cognac, joins us for a second time. Long term listeners may remember that he first came on the show a little over two years ago, and he's been very busy since then. In August 2016, Naoki sold his company to Rosetta for about $12 million. But that deal almost didn't happen. And today, Naoki joins us again to tell us the story of massive growth followed by near bankruptcy, followed by massive growth, followed by near bankruptcy, followed by recovery, and then finally followed by MA. So you already know the ending, but it's the story that's important. Naoki talks very openly about some of the mistakes he made and gives solid advice on how you can avoid making the same ones. And of course, he explains how he handled the negotiations for the acquisition and why he decided to exit now rather than continue to grow the company. But you know, Naoki tells that story much better than I do. So let's hear from our sponsor and then get right to the interview. I want to tell you about Justa. Now, I've known these guys for years, and I've been recommending them long before they became a sponsor. Justa is really the only recruiting site that gets bilingual startups. Whether you're looking for American engineers or Japanese sales staff or the other way around, Justa can help you out. Unlike recruiting companies, they're priced to be very startup friendly, and unlike job boards, they're an active part of the startup community here. And they're trusted by some of the best talent Japan has to offer. So drop by justa.io and see what they're about.、Okay. Cheers. Cheers. It's great to see you.、Again. Yeah. I'm sitting here with Naoki Yamada, and we're going to talk about cognac.、Yeah. And it's an exciting story of starting up and growing and almost going bankrupt and growing and almost going bankrupt <laughs> again. And, Having a happy ending. <laughs> so, thanks for sitting down with us. Thank you. So, let's, let's back up a bit. Let's back up a lot. Tell us about what cognac is. When was the last time we talked? A little over two years ago. Okay. Yeah.、Uh, it's been a while and we changed a lot. We started cognac service as a, as a social transition. And we slightly changed our service to. From, from consumer service to、um, business service, to be service、right. in 2013. So, so let, let's start from the beginning.、Yeah. So, in, in 2009, right, you started it. What is consumer translation? Was it like peer to peer translation?、Mm, it was more like, you know,、um, community based translation service. At that time, there's only two options for the translations one is、um, traditional translation agencies. And the other one is、um, Google, like, you know, machine translation stuff. We wanted to make a service in between those two options. So we asked people who can do the translations outside of your community. We aggregated many translators in our platform and we asked translation to those people. So was it just Very small batch、mm-hmm. translations of、right. 10 words or a tweet、right. or that kind of thing? Most of the translations are for tweeters and small 
sentences like you know letters and stuff it worked for pleasure but uh, it didn't work as a, as a business just not enough demand right okay and it was hard to find people who pays for that yeah i okay mm. so once you learned that you were saying you pivoted to more of a b2b model right it was four years after the service was started so it took a long time it took a long time to realize <laughs> that yeah <laughs> And since 2013, we people did a bit to be to be service, and the sales increased slightly from that point. At that point, the company was, you know, as you were pivoting to B two B, how big was your company? How much revenue? How much staff? The revenue was like about fifty thousand dollars a month. Okay. And the staff at the time was like ten people. Okay, so that's back in 2013. Yes. Okay. Well, it sounds like you're you're on your way. On that year, we got investment from several venture capitals, and we used a lot of money. <laughs> well, <laughs> for for the for the pe- people we hire. That's what startups are supposed <laughs> to do. I was thinking that if I if I hire more people, we can raise more sales and revenues. Okay. But it didn't work well. <laughs> okay, so so how how big was the round? It was not that big for the current you know variation. It was like zero point six million dollars. Okay, six hundred thousand dollars. Yes. And you went out and you hired how many people? About fifteen people. Oh wow! So you went from like six people to twenty people. Mm, right. Twenty people. That's a lot of people for. For that, 600,000 investment, right. yeah. Without, without, you know, that much revenue. Yeah. You had to be burning through cash. Right, yeah. How did you do that? Let's let's talk about that. Because that <laughs> is having to hire that many people in how short a time frame? Like a year. So what kind of people were you hiring? Mostly sales staff? Uh, we hired a couple of sales people. And also we hired engineers. It was good to create a new features, but it didn't link to the sales. So that functions is it didn't lead oh, to, okay. to the, the real money. So so the engineers were ge- were generating new features, but it wasn't helping to drive revenue. Right. And well, when you're growing that fast, mm-hmm. so how do you maintain a corporate culture uh, when you triple the size of the company in mm-hmm. one year? Mm-hmm. It was a big mistake I had. I didn't think that much about the culture and stuff. So everyone think differently and teams were spreading into many parts. So different teams just going in different directions? Right, right. After a year and a half, many of the members started to leave the company because of lack of culture and lack of a big vision. And um, at that time, we decided to pivot our service a bit to uh, more like general crowdsourcing service. It was a crowdsourcing translation service at that time. Right. And we decided to change it to more like bilingual crowdsourcing service that we can order things besides translations like, you know, research, marketing. So if someone wanted to create uh, like blog posts? Right, or... right. That's true. Okay. All right. It worked well. But um, many of our members think that we lost our culture and vision at that time because 
But um, I, I can understand that, right? Because right. The, the company's pivoting a bit. You've got different teams going in different mm-hmm. directions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how'd you, how'd you try to pull it together? Actually, we, we couldn't make it get together. The teams were about to explode and many people left the company and about less than 10 people were left. Okay, so you went from like six people to 20 people. Then going down to about, about six people again. Six people again. <laughs> so was the, the people who left, was that people who left because they were frustrated mm-hmm. and tired? or was yes, it? I guess. Or was it people, did you have to lay people off because you were running out of money? I was not actually laying off people. They left. They left? Mm. But you didn't hire replacements for them? It was hard to replace people because we are actually losing money. So if we replace people, the money went. I can imagine this is a very frustrating situation. Right. right. For about one year, it was, it was tough. So you went to six, to 20? Yes. To six again? Mm-hmm. Was it the same six people? No. <laughs> oh. Only a couple of people are the same. Well, that, I mean, that sounds like a really, a really difficult thing to go through. <laughs> um, looking back at it, now that you've kind of come out the other side, mm-hmm. what would you do differently? I could do many things, many <laughs> things differently. If I were there right now, I would create a solid culture and tell people more about what we are doing and what, why we are doing that kind of stuff. So communicate the vision and the right, activities. Right. I didn't talk that much with the members at that time because of... I can't remember why I didn't talk. But. Well, I, believe me, I understand. A lot of it is, as a CEO, the job is very stressful just by itself. Right. And sometimes talking to staff, talking to all the staff, it always seems like something you can delay. Right. You can do it next week or, or there's no urgency to it. Mm-hmm. And, and also... Um, I was actually considering that the money is, we, we are losing a lot of money. So I was thinking to get investment, I mean, in the next round. Oh, okay. At that time, so I was, I was talking a lot with the investors. So, so I didn't have that much time with the members. That was my excuse. <laughs> and, so did you know things were going wrong or did you just have not enough time uh, to deal with it? I was noticing about... The situations, but I was not looking at it directly. So that was my biggest mistake. Your advice to other founders would be like... <laughs> Talk with the, the members. Deal with the members even. Yeah, deal with the members. First priority. Yes. Okay. At this point, you've pivoted a bit. You're doing translation. You're doing um, general bilingual right, content right. creation. You're back down to six people. Yeah. What was the company look, looking like this? What were your revenues? And uh, We were almost bankrupt at that time, within, within three months or so. Then um, one of the sales members got a big deal from a big company. <laughs> then we survived. Oh. And that was the biggest deal for a company for the, the whole seven years, <laughs> I guess. Did you have to take on more staff to get this deal, to execute this deal? Or was it something that was just pure revenue for you at this point? It was a pure pure revenue. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So what year was this? It was 2015. 2015? Yes. Okay. So 2015, things are starting to look up again. Yes. You're getting revenue. Mm -hmm. 
what made you think about selling at this point? Or were you thinking about selling at this point? We actually um, talking with many companies at the time about, about the next round of the investment, uh, also the M&A. Okay, so what, what happened? You're, you've, it sounds like a very narrow escape. <laughs> you've got enough revenue, so you're, you're not going out of business. Mm -hmm. You're out shopping for new investments mm -hmm. and chatting with M&A. And mm -hmm. what happens next? I was actually talking with many companies and, and spent a lot of time in discussions. But things are, things are working concurrently because, you know, you, you have to run a business as well. Sure. So uh, I, was, I was doing the sales by myself as well. Things were starting to move faster. At the end of 2015, okay. we got many clients, many big clients at that time, and, and we could increase sales and revenues. From the end of last year, sales went well since then, and, and many companies are started to have interest with our company. So uh, I talked more companies about M&A. We found a, a good company to sell. So at that point, were you... Did you want to get acquired or were you trying to raise a round? I thought it was just a, just a way of get our business bigger. I mean, IPO or M&A, whichever option is just a, just a way of getting money or make your company bigger. That makes sense. But I mean, from you guys... Mm -hmm. um, as a founder? So as a founder, you were finally hitting a, a good growth mm -hmm. period. Mm -hmm. At the time of the M&A, you were doing about 5 million mm -hmm. US dollars in revenue. You were turning a profit, mm -hmm. like over $2 million, almost $3 million in profit. So what made you decide to go with the M&A route rather than an, another round of fundraising? I thought it will take time to go for IPO. It will take like a couple of years. So it would take time and the market is expanding right now. Also, the inbound things are getting bigger and bigger right now. So I think it, it is time for us to go to the next stage right now. And if I go with the fundraising, it will take time. So you, you didn't want to try to double the company in a year and sell it for twice as much next year? Uh, I was not thinking about it at the time. Mm. I was kind of tired of you know, working with M&A at the time. So, so I think I was, I was more like desire. You were looking for that exit. Right. Um, yeah. I was desiring to focus on the business itself. I was not able to focus on what we are doing for like a year because, you know. Right. You were in constant fundraising mode for a right, year. Right. For a year and a half. So I, I guess it was time for me to focus on, on the business. Okay. Well, that's true. I mean, people yeah. think of these... Whether it's M&A or IPO, they, they t tend to think of them as strictly financial decisions. Right. But they're not just financial decisions. Mm -hmm. There's a very real human cost in it. Right. <laughs> right. And also, we met many good companies who I thought a lot of synergy. So that, that is the, the biggest. So you sold to Rosetta. How did that deal come to be? Did you originally approached them for investment? Did they approach you saying they're interested in buying? How did the negotiations work? I met many companies and I was approaching as a fundraising. I, I, I told them that I was thinking of raising some money to grow the, the business. 
And during the, the, the talk, they are interested in acquiring us, and I decided to switch to, to more on M&A. About Rosetta, I, I reached that company from the bank. Banking introduced us. I met them in early May, and we deeply to- started to talk about M&A from late July. In, in 2016? This year. So that deal was done very quickly. Yeah, it was fast, like, you know, a yeah. couple of weeks. weeks. Yes. That's astounding. Yeah. Now, M&A in Japan is still, I wouldn't say it's unusual, mm-hmm. but it's not as common It's not as common as it is in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about, like, what did they want? Mm-hmm. So what were they worried about? Mm-hmm. What were they excited about? Because I'm sure, like, all startup founders in Japan want to know this. After I talked with many companies, I was noticed that Many companies are trying to buy the company, but they don't know who is selling the company. Oh. So um, there's mismatching here. That is the big, biggest problem, I, I thought. There's a couple companies are doing matching for, for the M&A. Right. But compared to the U.S., the number is very, very small. So startup companies cannot find companies who wants to buy the company. Also, big companies... They can't find, they can't find startups, startups to buy. Well, that's a bad situation. Mm. But once you started negotiating, was the negotiations mainly about price? Or uh, what was Rosetta most worried about in the deal? And what were they most excited about in the deal? Rosetta is doing machine translation and tra- also the traditional translation. And they didn't have in-between service. So they were very, very excited about putting crowdsourcing staff in between their businesses. That is the biggest decision that they decided to acquire us. And they are not worried about the price. They went IPO last year mm-hmm. and they didn't acquire that much companies yet. But still, they are not worried about the price. So they had a lot of IPO money they wanted to spend? No, actually. They... <laughs> they, they used up most of the, the, the assets they have for our company. So it was a big challenge for them, but they didn't worry about that okay. much. That's a strange stuff, but... What about the, the Cognac team? Did they know you were negotiating for an M&A? No, I was... I guess they were thinking that I was not doing anything at the time. <laughs> oh, really? That's, that's not a good situation. <laughs> I was, I was in my studio, I was putting like, you know, uh, fundraising. So, so they didn't know at all. No. Oh, well, that must have been very stressful for the team. Mm, it was very, very stressful for me. <laughs> uh, they were not, they were doing they, their jobs every day. And so, so the team found out after the deal was done and you announced it to them? In the morning of the disclosure, we had a whole team meeting. I talked with them. What was their reaction? They were surprised, but they were they seem like they are happy about about the deal. Just it, it feels more stable. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> well, what about you? What was your feeling after you finally did it? Uh, the biggest feeling was relief. I was relieved about the stuff that I don't have to risk money. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I don't have to talk about M&A no more. 
So it was more a feeling of relief than happiness. Yeah. I can understand that. Yeah. It was hard to, after a month or so, I was, I was a bit stressful about, about the merger. It, it's a, it's a um, public company and, and we are a private company, so many of the rules and stuff are different. But um, right now, it was okay. We got many changes and we are focusing on more, more on businesses. That's great. That? So the attitude towards M&A in Japan is changing. Hmm. I guess, yeah, that's, I believe that. When I sold my first company back in 2001, hmm. all of my American friends called me up and said, congratulations, that's great news, let's go have a beer. And all of my Japanese friends called me up and said, oh, I'm so sorry, I know you were working so hard on this and you had to sell, let's go get a beer. Uh-huh. <laughs> What, I drank a lot of beer that yeah. way. <laughs> Anyways. Um, what was the reaction of your, of your friends and your um, people in the community? Was it positive, negative? It was positive. Most of, the, most of my friends are positive reactions, especially um, entrepreneurs. And also my family really happy about my decision because I was working so hard. For like a year and, you know. <laughs> I, I was going to ask, were they happy about the money or were they were happy that just <laughs> your stress level had been released? About the stress level. I, I didn't talk about, about money, anything <laughs> at the time. So. so how has the post-M&A integration gone? Has it been pretty smooth? Uh, I guess we still have some stuff to, to be done, like documentation and stuff, but everything seems well. Everyone kept their job? Yeah. Cool. And so how has your job changed since the M&A? Now, finally, I started to focus on on the business, new features and stuff. So I'm happy about it. And and I can't sleep right now. (laughs) Yeah. You don't have to worry about payroll every month. (laughs) Yeah. Are you guys working in the same office? Is it... Did they move you into their offices? No, we... Before the M&A, we talked about the cultures and stuff, and the culture is totally different. So, so I did. Um, we were asking them to keep our office, and and they are okay with that. Oh, that's good. That's smart. Yeah, that's really smart. Well, there's pros and cons for that stuff, but what what are the pros and cons? Some of our friends who did M&A moved their office to the acquiring company. But the, the good point of changing the office together is um, they can communicate well about, about the, like, you know, if they have a business synergy, oh, it, yeah. it'll be better with the, the same office. But to keep the culture, you probably need to keep the office separated. So how does it work now? Do you just do different members of the team meet with the Rosetta people or is it just you or the main interface between Rosetta and the um, team? Salespeople are meeting with Rosetta people and there will be more close company staff. So it sounds like the integration is, it's just they're taking it very, very slowly. Right. That's yeah. probably best for everyone. Yeah. It will take time and culture cannot march that fast. So That can be hard. Mm. What would be the best advice you can give to large companies who have acquired a small one and want the integration to go smoothly? They need to understand that startup companies dislike 
the slow culture and stuff. So they need to respect that. And entrepreneurs are usually selfish. <laughs> they need to understand that, you know. <laughs> so they need to take a really hands-off right. approach to the company. For the first few months, yeah, at least. You know, that's probably the most comfortable way the companies can work together if the if the owning company just says, okay, here is your objectives for the next six months and here are your resources to do that and just do it. That seems like it'd be the smoothest way, oh. the happiest way for the startup side. Oh, yeah. I guess, but um, it depends on the... Some people like to be controlled and some people dislike that. So, well, I think most entrepreneurs dislike the control. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> so they've let you maintain your culture, your your processes. They're not making you use like ringishio or anything. No, <laughs> <laughs> that's good. <laughs> so what's next for you? Are you going to stay at Rosetta for years and years? Are you going to start a new company sometime in the future? Are you going to start investing or mentoring? What are you going to do? Right now, I'm not thinking about starting up a new company. I'm still very, very excited about Cognac business. I'm, I believe that Rosetta and our company can, can be bigger, 10, 10 times bigger within like five years. So I will, I will keep doing this business for, for a while. That's good. <laughs> no, that's, that kind of focus is really good and really rare mm. in acquisitions, you know, especially now that it's been well, about four months. Mm -hmm. In the first month or two, everyone says that. Yeah. But after four months, you sort of know what you've gotten yourself into. But um, I have many interests uh, about markets. So I will probably invest some money to other companies. Small amount, but I can tell a little about how to, to maintain the startups. I think right now, uh, one of the most important things in the startup community in Japan is having entrepreneur investors because still most Japanese VCs are finance people. Yeah. You know, they've never worked in a startup. Most have never worked in a regular operating company. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think that's great. You're going to be out there investing and advising. Many of my senpai entrepreneurs are doing investment for the ecosystem. So, and I respect that, you know, activity. So, so I, I think it's, it's a good thing to do it. Have you started yet or you're still heads down in the, in the integration? Uh, I'm, I can't tell right now. Okay. <laughs> All good? Yeah. <laughs> I believe that there's, a, there's a, a sentence that I cannot do the side business. Or so. Ah, okay. <laughs> Off the record. <laughs> I got you. So we'll just say you're... you're Looking at startups. <laughs> well, listen, before, before we wrap up, okay. let me ask you my magic wand question. Yeah. And that's, if I gave you a magic wand mm. and I said that you could change one thing about Japan, anything mm. at all, the attitude towards risk, education system, legal system, yeah. to make things better for startups, what would you change? Probably culture. It's it's an education. So how would you how would you change it? I spent time in the states as a student and thought that education system is totally different. Yeah, 
in the States, many people are studying stuff actively. They speak, they... Um, they give they, presentations, yeah, they, they argue. Right, they argue. And they try to get something from every single moment. But um, Japanese education, you sit and listen. That's, that's the biggest problem we have. Yeah, well, that's, you're right. That's almost the exact opposite mm. of the founder mindset. Right, right. In the current education system, it would be hard to grow the, the entrepreneurship mind. You know, I, I hear a lot of people say exactly that, mm. including like politicians and <laughs> educators. Do you see it changing? Uh, it's slightly changing. Only a bit. <laughs> bit by bit. Yeah. But um, need to have something. Radical change has to be done. Everyone talks about creativity, but it sounds more like the important thing is proactive, doing yeah. things yourself. Right. Need to think logically and, and speak up about what they think. Right. Where there's no right or wrong answer. Right. Just action. Yeah. All right. Hey, well, listen. Is there anything else that you want to talk about? I'm not sure what success is, but I think our M&A is not that big. But um, after the M&A is, is more important than before M&A. Because, mm-hmm. you know, um, money not, is not everything. You have to think about the future. And 10 years, 20 years from now, if the service is still there, your business is, might be successful. If make changes to, to the, the market and, and society, it might be successful. I guess you have to think about the impact and what you are doing. Okay. Well, that makes sense. So additional money would help you grow a bit faster, but mm-hmm. being part of Rosetta, this bigger company, mm-hmm. allows you to achieve your real ends mm-hmm. much more efficiently. Right. And to, to impact to the, to the society. Okay. It might be changed. All right, excellent. Well, listen, thanks again for sitting down with me. Mm -hmm. And uh, let's not wait so long next time. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Some of Japan's largest companies are starting open innovation programs and actively reaching out to global startups. They're new at this, and that's where Crew, with two W's, comes in. Crew runs corporate startup accelerators for companies like Toyota and Panasonic and dozens more. And these programs are one of the best ways to jumpstart your business in Japan. Many are open to global startups, and they're completely free. Now, I've known and worked with the crew team, and they're probably doing more than anyone to bridge the gap between corporate Japan and global startups. So drop by crew with two W's dot M-E slash four hyphen startups and get started. And we're back. You know... Strategic M&A is still relatively rare in Japan. Most acquisitions are of distressed companies. So I found it both surprising and hopeful that Naoki's experience was that many public companies were interested in strategic acquisitions of startups, and that the problem was more a matter of them being able to determine what startups were potentially for sale. Now, this is something that can be easily solved as, or perhaps if, Japanese investors start taking a more hands-on role in shopping for exits rather than simply pushing their portfolio companies to IPO as soon as possible. It could be great news for Japanese startups. 
It also seems that Rosetta is being very smart with its post-acquisition integration plans. Most Japanese companies don't handle the integration well and simply place the startup under several levels of corporate management and begin treating everyone as junior to mid-level employees. It usually doesn't end well. Rosetta is taking a different approach. Rosetta is working closely with the Cognac sales team and with the key executives, but they're having the Cognac team continue to use their old offices with their existing processes and to maintain the corporate culture that led to Cognac's success in the first place. If you want to know more about Cognac or M&A in Japan, Naoki and I would love to hear from you. So come by disruptingjapan.com slash show 065 and let's talk about it. When you drop by, you'll find the links and sites that Naoki and I talked about and much, much more in the resources section of the post. And when you get the chance, be sure to check out Disrupting Japan Inroads. It's a detailed real-world case study of Japanese market entry and expansion and a look inside the minds of some of the best people bringing foreign technology to Japan. And it's a perfect complement to the podcast. So check it out at disruptingjapan.com slash inroads. But most of all, thanks for listening. And thank you for letting people interested in Japanese startups know about the show. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening to Disrupting Japan.